0: And and for a lot of secular people, they don't don't understand that. And I think this actually shows one um, one of the problems we have today is because as people, as our culture and society becomes less religious, people have less contact with these types of religious celebrations. So for them, they think, well, what's the big deal? It's just a wedding, right? It's a kind of new version of it's only a piece of paper.
1: Welcome to the Acton Line podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Zaja, producer. Francis Beckwith, professor of philosophy and church state studies at Baylor University, discusses the lecture he gave at Acton University 2022, entitled Taking Rights Seriously, Law, Politics, and the Reasonableness of Faith. Sarah Negri, Acton's research project coordinator, sits down with Beckwith to discuss how religious rights, such as marriage— have a special significance not typically recognized in civil law, and how religion is unfairly set up in conflict with reason, when in fact, rights and religious observances can be profoundly reasonable. In addition, they talk about the difference between conscience and religious freedom, and how using these two similar but distinct concepts as a basis for legal decisions may have different social ramifications. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes, on our website at slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Actin Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Welcome to
2: Actin Line. I'm Sarah Negri, Research Project Coordinator at the Acton Institute. Today I'm joined by Dr. Francis Beckwith, a philosopher who teaches, publishes, and speaks on a variety of topics and issues in ethics, law, politics, and religion. He is currently Professor of Philosophy and Church State Studies at Baylor University, where he also serves as Associate Director of the Graduate Program in Philosophy and Affiliate Professor of Political Science. Dr. Beckwith is the author of over 100 academic articles, book chapters, reference entries, and reviews. He has also written over a dozen books, including Defending Life, A Moral and Legal Case Against Abortion Choice, Politics for Christians, Statecraft as Soulcraft, and his award-winning Taking Rights Seriously, Law, Politics, and the Reasonableness of Faith. His most recent book is Never Doubt Thomas, the Catholic Aquinas as Evangelical and Protestant, with an MJS degree from the Washington University School of Law in St. Louis and MA and PhD degrees in philosophy from Fordham University, Dr. Beckwith has held visiting appointments at the University of Colorado Boulder, the University of Notre Dame, and Princeton University. Dr. Beckwith, thanks for being with us today and welcome to Acton Line.
0: Well, thanks for having me, Sarah.
2: We're here at Acton University where we've been bringing together a lot of folks to talk about religion and liberty. Dr. Beckwith is one of our speakers for the week. And so we're going to delve right in to one of his lectures that he just gave about law, politics and the reasonableness of faith. It was entitled Taking Rights Seriously, which is the name of one of your books. Is that
0: correct? That that's right. Yeah. Came out in 2015.
2: Great. So your lecture centered on a discussion of law and some of the court cases that we've recently seen in America and how they have an unnatural divide between reason and faith, and they're putting religion on the opposite side of secular reason. Is that correct?
0: That's right. So, you know, there are um, there are different different ways in which uh, people generally think about religion, but the, but the courts, at least most people in elite culture, tend to think of religion as somehow intrinsically irrational. So. As an example that I gave in the lecture, Uh, a couple of years ago, actually 18 years ago now, I was at Texas Tech University, gave a talk on religion and public education, actually mostly dealing with questions in science curriculum. And at the end of my lecture, a gentleman in the audience raised his hand and said, all you've given us are religious arguments. And I responded by saying, wow, I'm relieved. I thought you were going to say they were bad arguments. <laughs> and the point of, of of that quip was to in a kind of indirect way tell the audience, you know, arguments are either sound or unsound. Um, they have either premises that are plausible or implausible, true or false. And it depends on whether your reasons support the conclusion in terms of, of assessing the argument. Calling something religious in and of itself doesn't tell you of the quality of the case that is made. But I think what's going on, and, and I think you see this, and I make the, made the argument in the lecture, some some judges and justices and legal scholars think that if they can call a position religious – that not only means that it is somehow violates the establishment clause, that is, it's establishing religion in law, which is in violation of the constitution. They're also implying there's something like irrational about the view.
2: And how does that, getting that distinction wrong, how does that affect the case for religion in general?
0: Yeah, I think it, it affects it in a couple of ways. So one way that I mentioned in the talk has to do with the way some scholars and judges and justices think of the issue of abortion. So there have been several cases, um, many cases the Supreme Court has dealt with the issue, but once in a while you'll hear a justice, and in one case in particular, Justice John Paul Stevens in his dissent in Webster Versus Reproductive Health Services, uh, talks about uh a Missouri, a portion of Missouri statute, the preamble where it asserts that life begins at conception. And Stephen says, well, life begins at conception as a religious belief uh, because there's no state interest in protecting uh, embryos or early human beings at that stage because they can't be harmed in any way. And then recently, Justice Sotomayor uh, in oral argument, in the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health case, one talking to the attorney from Mississippi. Well, your view is is just religious. And what they're doing, and I don't I don't think they're doing it consciously, but I, I think that there's a sense in which they're trying to take, two answers to one question and turning it into two different subjects. Now, what do do I mean by that? So the question in the issue of abortion is, is who and who is not a member of the human community? And does it include unborn human beings? And there are different answers to that. You know, traditionally, uh, Christians and other pro-lifers have argued that unborn human beings are in fact full-fledged members of the human community, because, not because of what they do, because of what they are. Then there are those, there are, there are certain philosophers and bioethicists who say, well, the unborn is a human being, but not a person. And they, they, they want to make this distinction between human beings based on how they act or how they uh, engage in certain types of activities. Now, I, my view is is the pro-life view. I think that all life is is sacred that that no human being no innocent human being should be intentionally killed regardless of their size level of development environment or dependency but that's one answer to that question but what the justices are trying to do is to turn a disputed issue over how to answer a particular question into two different subjects religion and secular reason and what I argued in my lecture was that, no, both are, in a sense, deliverances of reason. One is a uh, a set of arguments or the consequence of a set of arguments that defends unborn human life as sacred. The other says, offers arguments and says, no, it isn't. But it's not two different subjects. It isn't religion and secularism.
2: And as a philosopher... I'm intrigued by your interest in the law, especially taking your philosophical background and applying that to the American political system. Would you say that there's a lack in metaphysical education or understanding of metaphysics that really underlies the problem here? When you're asking the question, who counts as a member of the human race, that's really a metaphysical question. What is a human being? What is the nature of a human? Do you think that a lot of our controversy here? is related to the fact that we've lost a shared metaphysics?
0: Absolutely. I think you not only see it in the abortion debate, I think you see it in the debates about transgender, uh, the nature of marriage. I mean, these are all ultimately anthropological questions. Now, I'm not referring to the academic discipline of anthropology, but the sort of the actual technical term, the study of man. And so philosophical anthropology is an area of philosophy that deals deals with that question. It's also, as as you've implied, it's also also part of metaphysics. And metaphysics deals with questions about what's real, what exists, what are the nature of things, right? So things are, the world's full of all different sorts of things, right? There's books and chairs and People and numbers, (laughs) you know. Well, what are they? You know, uh, is a number like a dog? (laughs) (laughs) No, they're different sorts of things. And so, what makes uh, a being uh, valuable, or what counts as moral status, is ultimately, I think, it's not. Even though it's, there's, it's clearly a moral question. It's not merely a moral question, right? It's a metaphysical one. So, supposing you know, you're, you're a parent and your back is turned to your young child and you hear her, that she's five years old and she says, mommy, can I kill it? Now it, what's your next question? What is it? It depends whether it's a cockroach or her little brother. Yeah. Right. So (laughs) it's metaphysics, right? It's what, who and what we are. And, uh, and what's, what, What I think you get in a lot of these judges and justices is a kind of naive scientism. What what is scientism? Scientism is the belief that the only things we can really know are the deliverances of the hard sciences. And so um, figuring out um, whether a um, – or or making a judgment about whether a human being – has moral status. Um, The scientists really can't tell us that, right? So, uh, you know, the best the scientists can do is empirically show that a being has the right DNA to be declared a human being. But whether it's valuable or whether it uh, is worthy of moral status is something that Uh, science can't deliver, so it must be religion or subjective or something like that. But the fact is, even the judges and justices really down deep, they don't conduct their lives as if that's true, right? The idea that you should obey the law is not a deliverance of the hard sciences, right? (laughs) Or that uh, law in some way reflects the human good. That's not a scientific question. It's a a philosophical question question.
2: Mm -hmm. And you even mentioned that scientism itself is a belief that only the things that are deliverables of science are reliable. And the the belief itself is not not a delivery of science. That's right.
0: It's just a dogma, Mm -hmm. right? And people, you know, they'll, um, you know, I remember years ago, I I forget what class I was teaching, but uh, I made some kind of moral statement in class. And my student said, well, science has improved that. And I go, I said, well, so much the worse for science, right? I mean, so that, I mean, that means if that's, if that's your standard by which to make moral judgments and you, you say, well, science can't prove it. Well, then you're using the wrong instrument or the wrong tool uh, to solve this problem. It's the, um, it's like the, it's like the guy, the the drunk that loses his keys and only looks under the lamp because it's got the most light, (laughs) Right? You know, it's like it, it could be somewhere else. Right. So the same thing with some of these questions. Right. They, 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 they are not. Yeah. Science is a great tool, but it's not the only tool.
2: Would you say that faith is a similar tool in coming to understanding or how would you, how would you define faith and reason?
0: Yeah. And
2: how would you describe their interconnection?
0: Well, why don't you ask me a more difficult question <laughs> it's, a, it's a very it's a, it's, it's a tough question and, I, and and I will sort of come clean here that I am a follower of Saint. Thomas Aquinas so I accept Aquinas' views about um, faith and reason and their views are by the by the way that are widely held among not only Catholics but other Christians as well uh, reason is simply our, you know, the ability or the power of our mind, uh, that we exercise when we examine the world. And we can, we have speculative reason, which is, you know, know, an aspect of our reason dealing with things that are just, that are just worth knowing because they exist. Like, you know, uh, you know, let's say, you know, uh, when did the universe start? Or, um, you know, um, What is, we could say, even something like, uh, did God always exist? These are sort of, you know, ways in which we exercise uh, our reason, practical reason, having to do, as you would suspect, practical things. Like, you know, how can I move from A to B? Um, And so we use our reason in a variety of different ways. uh, But faith, now sometimes our reason can actually uh, lead us to beliefs that happen to overlap things that we can know by faith. So uh, I can, let's say, have a really good arg- argument for God's existence uh, or let's say a good argument for the existence of the soul. But I, that's not, though, something I know by faith. Faith, at least in the classical Christian sense of faith, is something that is acquired as the movement of God's grace on one soul, and so you assent to ar- the articles of faith; those things that, as Christians, we affirm uh, in the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and so forth. Uh, and uh, so, there is an act of will on our part, uh, but it's it's not it's not something that we could sort of conjure up on our own. In fact. A lot of Christians, or some Christians, I think, confuse faith and reason. They think that you need an argument for God's existence before you can have faith. And that's not, and that, in fact, that's a, a kind of variation, of what is sometimes called the Pelagian heresy. It's like, as if, like, I, I need to use exercise without the grace of God at all on my own. So there are things that we can know, another way of putting it, there are things that we can know only because God has revealed to them. And that, and some philosophers like Aquinas say those are things known by faith, so things like the Trinity exists, uh, or that God is a Trinity, that Jesus died for our sins, um, that there's such a thing as grace. Those are things that we can uh, or or the meaning of, let's say, the resurrection. You could have, and I think there is good historical evidence for the resurrection, but the meaning of it, you can't really derive from just the historical evidence. That's something that can only be revealed. Uh, so they clearly overlap, right? So there are there are things, as I mentioned earlier, that we can know through reason, but when we know them through reason, we don't we don't really have faith in them. So uh, it give you an illustration I, that I've used on several occasions. Imagine there are two people, Tony and Tina. Tony is a cab driver uh, in Las Vegas. That's where I grew up, by the way. So I like to use oh, nice. Las Vegas as an example. So Tony's a cab driver in Las Vegas. And Tina is a philosophy professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Uh, Tina, uh, neither one of them goes to church. They're not religious. Tina Believes in God though. She believes in God because she has studied Moses Maimonides, great Jewish philosopher, um, Avicenna, the great uh, Muslim philosopher, and Thomas Aquinas, the great Catholic philosopher, and thinks that their arguments for God's existence are sound. And so she believes in the existence of God. Tony believes in God, but he has no arguments. He just, that's what he's been taught. He just believes in God, but neither one has faith. And so it turns out that Tony and Tina uh, are invited by a common friend to a Bible study at a local church, and they read the New Testament, and they are moved by grace to assent to becoming Christians, and they are subsequently baptized and so forth. Uh, So even though both Tony and Tina believed in God, they didn't have faith in God. Tina believed because based on reason. Tony just Happened to have the correct belief, right? He didn't have any. He couldn't have come up with any arguments, and so, uh, so in the so the the idea that um, so so the point is that faith and reason work in concert with each other. They're in a sense different ways of knowing, um, and they, in principle, shouldn't conflict with one another.
2: I like that distinction that you make between faith and belief. I think sometimes colloquially we use those terms interchangeably. But that's a really good distinction because, as I understand it, the philosophical definition of knowledge traditionally is something along the lines of justified true belief. Yes. And that uses the word belief, but faith is not involved. As you say, faith is a supernatural gift. Yeah. What do you think of the cumulative case theory where there are lots of different reasons for having a certain belief that you hold and you can't always pin them down to one particular argument where reason plays a role, rational arguments play a role, perhaps faith plays a role in forming some of these beliefs that you hold, which hopefully would be knowledge justified true belief. What are your thoughts on kind of that theory?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it depends on the subject matter, right? So, um, You know, let's say that um, you believe – this is apart from faith. Let's say uh, you you say, I believe in God. Again, you don't have faith. You're not a a religious believer. You just say, I believe God exists. And why? Well, um, it's – you know, I I have this awareness that there are things that I ought to do uh, whenever I do something wicked – I sense the eyes of God upon me, you know? Uh, I uh, So I have a kind of, there's a moral inclination I have to do the right thing and to uh, not do the wrong thing. And sometimes I'm tempted to do the wrong thing and, and something tugs at my heart, it's kind of conscience. So I, I think that's God and it's God's way of sort of uh, you know, trying to leading me to to do the correct thing. Uh, it seems to me, when I look out into the universe, uh, I find it incredible that something so complex could have arisen by any other means than an intelligence. Um, uh, there could be, um, you know, I prayed once in a while. I've prayed once in a while, and and. They've come. What I've asked for has come to pass. I mean, so so not one thing. Let's say is is, is the you know the sort of there's not one knockdown drag out argument. And and I think there's something to that. I mean, obviously, um, uh, it's better to have like one really good. <laughs> I think it's really if you have an argument that's like can't be defeated, that's probably the best thing. Do those exist? yeah I actually I actually think there's I think there's a version of the cosmological argument that's like that but but what's weird about arguments though is that is that and especially when I think when it comes to something like like belief in God, it isn't like other like if if you want to convince me, let's say to change my views on welfare policy and you give like the greatest argument I go, yeah, I guess i change I'll change my mind there's really no kind of personal investment in that it isn't like yeah, you know, i i I have to change how I live. so, so, or I have to, you know, you know, start thinking about ultimate matters in a completely different way., uh, but with belief in God, um I think even if you have a perfect argument, you know, there are there are so many other factors that go into belief because even even though what I said earlier, there's a difference between faith and reason. I think a lot of people realize the implication that if, in fact, You've got this like knock down dragout argument for God's existence that it may require that I actually start doing things like going to church and and you know not living a particular way i mean so I think that there's a lot more going on i I'll give you one illustration um is not it doesn't have to do with God it has to do with uh, the issue of abortion uh it's been i think almost thirty years now i, I was involved with a debate. I had a debate with the head of the the School of Social Work at the University of Nevada, where I taught. That was my first job. And it was moderated by a colleague of mine in the philosophy department who was very strongly pro-choice. So she and I disagreed, but she was a very fair-minded moderator. So after the debate, she leans over to me and she says, oh my gosh, you totally won this debate. And I said, well, why don't you change your mind? And she goes, I can't. Well, why not? She goes, I just can't. And, and so it wasn't that she was intellectually, um, you know, not virtuous or anything. It's just that there was so much, I think, emotionally attached to holding that position. In, in addition, she probably was confident that she could come up with counter arguments to my view. But but so it isn't as if, you know, that we are sort of simply w- rational, detached Beings, right? We're not angels, right? We are rational animals, and so we're we have we can't, I think, ignore the fact that when people offer arguments that you may find convincing. In fact, they may very well be convincing arguments. We can't uh, ignore the fact that people are moved by emotion too.
2: Certainly, and there's a complexity there that again comes down to metaphysics, the kind of being we are, and how would you say that this complexity? translates to the legal sphere obviously there's a lot of distinctions you can make philosophically between faith and reason and there are some like you said there's overlap there the ways we form beliefs are complex how does that complexity intensify when you take it to the legal system when you're trying to create a system of order in a free society where there is morality involved you have to to some extent include morality in your laws and when you take things to the courts, trying to make decisions on cases where people disagree, whether metaphysically or morally, um, how would you say the complexity is heightened there?
0: Yeah. So I think um, there's a couple of different illustrations. One we, we've already briefly alluded to, that's the issue of abortion. Um, there, There is a tendency uh, among some in the legal profession, as well as among the justices, to try to Um, sort of sequester the pro-life view as somehow as religious and therefore uh, out of bounds. And I think there is a misunderstanding of, of at least the way most, virtually all people that oppose abortion argue, even though many of them, if not most of them, are motivated by religion. They offer arguments that are accessible to people that don't share their faith. On the other hand, you have cases where the religious aspect of a practice is ignored in the in a way where it is appropriate to bring it in. So uh, one of the cases that I briefly talked about in my lecture is the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, the case involving Jack Phillips, the baker in Denver, Colorado, who uh, declined from making a custom wedding cake for a same-sex couple who... Uh, who's one of one of one of the partners' mother came there to, to order it and he denied service. And uh, what the courts and and even the Supreme Court and and the at least one of the courts in Colorado completely ignored was the uh, liturgical aspect of weddings for Christian believers like Jack Phillips. Um, you know, weddings, are more like um, baptisms and bar mitzvahs than they are like birthday parties and bat- and uh, and bachelor parties, right? They're they, they're the e- even secular weddings. Um, and the reason for that, if you look at at least in the Christian tradition, um, uh, the relationship in marriage between a man and a woman is uh, is used as an analogy to describe the relationship between Christ and the church. Um, the uh, most religious traditions, including uh, Christianity, if a couple is married outside of the religious group, there's all these rules about whether it counts as a marriage in the eyes of God. And so uh, the courts completely ignored the aspect of even secular weddings that has religious significance for Uh, for Jack Phillips. And I'm not even sure his attorneys argued for that, but it's something that in my most recent work, I have an article coming out uh, later this year in the George, George Mason university's um, civil rights law journal, in which I argue that, um, that, that courts and legal scholars have in the name of equality kind of diminished or blocked from their vision those aspects of religious practices that do distinguish religious practices from other other types of practices, and the the wedding the wedding vendor cases are, are fascinating in that regard because uh, the attempt there on the part of the courts is to treat um, you know the um, the business uh, at least in terms of, of weddings as just another commodity to be exchanged, not uh, you know ignoring completely the specific type of uh, of celebration and, th- and that that's all that's doing the work because in none of these cases would the vendors deny service if it were let's say a, a gay or lesbian individual who just wants to, let's say buy a cake off the shelf <laughs> or something like that. it's it's the celebration. So I think uh, and, and for a lot of secular people they don't they don't understand that and I think this actually shows, one of the um, one of the problems we have today is because as people as our culture and society becomes less religious, people have less contact with these types of religious celebrations. So for them, they think, well, "What's the big deal? It's just a wedding, right? It's a kind of new version of it's only a piece of paper." Which is when I was a when I was a kid, um, you know, w- which was a, quite a while ago. Uh, you know, there was a lot, there were a lot of challenges to traditional marriage. And people would say, well, it's just a piece of paper, right? We can just live together. Uh, And so there's a a sense in which there's a kind of version of this. It's like, oh, it's just a wedding, right? But, But for the religious believer, um, it, it's it's more than, it's more than that. And, and, and as I said, as we move further away, as, as, as the culture becomes less religious and people have less contact with these kinds of celebrations, they tend to not see or understand or have empathy for citizens that do take them religiously serious.
2: Sure. There's that loss of contact with the transcendent. And you say um, a transcendent source of being— yeah. is one of those elements that makes religion distinct from other practices. What are some of the other elements you'd say distinguish it and set it apart, make it a different category in a way?
0: Yeah, one is, is this sort of connection to the divine, um, that um, that there's a sense of of having to be obedient to the divine. So if you look at some of the early American... Uh, defenses of religious liberty. And here I'm thinking of of Thomas Jefferson's letter, or not letter, his um, bill on religious liberty, and then uh, James Madison's moral remonstrance. It's interesting how they ground religious liberty on the individual believer's obedience to God. And so religious liberty make sense for Jefferson and and Madison and even those that didn't always agree with Jefferson and Madison, what made was that was that um, uh, there's a sense of duty that people have. It's not as if you choose your religion, although people do choose their religion, right? People convert, but generally, I mean, conceptually, it's better to think of your religion choosing you. (laughs) So think about like the, um, uh, there's a case back in the, in the 80s involving a, I think it was a pilot, an Air Force pilot, um, or at least it was a gentleman that was in the Air Force, uh, Jewish gentleman. He was Orthodox and he wanted to wear his yarmulke and he asked for an exemption and the Air Force wouldn't give it to him and the, he wound up losing in the Supreme Court. And there's a, a line in one of the opinions of the court that refers to um, this pilot's religion of choice. And I, 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 when I go over that case, it, when I talk about it in class, I tell my students, is it really true that this young Jewish gentleman chose his religion? In other words, is, is his wearing of the yarmulke something like a wardrobe choice? No, it's something he thinks God requires him as a Jewish male to wear. And that's, so it's not, it can't be reduced to uh, something that's under our control. So for the so I actually think this is a nice way to think about the the Jack Phillips Masterpiece Cake Shop case. It isn't as if Jack Phillips cho, chooses not to, to to make the cake for the same-sex couple. It's he can't. <laughs> it it's 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 something that he actually may want to do. I've actually I shared this with my students once. I said, you know, um, there are a lot there are several beliefs that I hold that I wish I didn't have to hold. And they looked at me, and I I said, and I was trying to express to them that oftentimes for the serious religious believer, it's not under your control. And I think that's missing in in a culture that tends to want to see everything as a commodity, and uh, kind of you know that everything can be. you know, evaluated under free market principles. Now, I, I'm a free. I'm a defender of free markets, but I, I think free markets, uh, that, that you know, don't apply to every aspect of life, right? Without, I think, distorting those aspects of life, and I think religious belief is is one of them.
2: Sure, there's that individual choice idea that is very dominant in our culture, where you can choose whatever you want, and you're saying that it's actually it's actually reasonable to place certain things outside of that category, that religion may not always, or you're saying it often coincides with rational beliefs, but it actually goes beyond that in many ways, but it's still reasonable to make a place for religion and that you're saying the courts should start to accept that and see that as being not outside of reason, but actually reasonable for a human being to
0: embrace religion. Exactly, something could be reasonable without being a deliverance of reason. So so think about um, something like the obligation that you have to your aged parents. So this is a, another example I use with my students. Imagine I'm walking across the campus and you see me from a distance and there are two homeless people, man and a woman, they're elderly, and they ask for some money. I don't give them any. And a couple of you start saying, uh, I wonder... What's wrong with Beckwith? Why doesn't he give the homeless people money? And somebody says, "Well, maybe he gave them yesterday." And so, okay, or, or maybe he, you know, he's got good reason. Maybe he knows that they spend their money unwisely, or something like that. But imagine, though, you discovered it was my parents. Would that change your judgment about my obligations to them? Now, you would probably think horrible things about me at that point. But what if I said, "Well, I didn't ask to be born, so I don't owe them anything." I never consented to come into being, right? I mean, I'd be using a contractual model to try to capture my obligation to my aged parents. And most people would say, that's crazy. You are obligated to care for them by the mere fact that they brought you into existence. It's what, um, it's what Aquinas calls a form of piety filial piety to the the, sort of the the same kind of devotion or analogous to our devotion to God. And is it reasonable? Of course it's reasonable. Can I give you a knockdown, drag out modern argument as to why it is? Probably not because it can't be fully captured or cabined by our sort of contractual, you know, um, consensual model of human relations, um, and But that doesn't make it unreasonable or irrational.
2: Is it possible in a society like ours that is so contractual, especially on a legal level, is it possible, do you think, to bring in this extra contractual element, this area outside that's still reasonable but doesn't yeah. correspond to that mindset with the way our legal system currently functions? Is it is it a war we should win? on their terms within the idea of contracts and trying to make arguments that fit that definition? Or do you think it's something that's not possible to win within that framework?
0: I I don't think it's possible, (laughs) at least with some things. So, um, so think about, this is a illustration I've, I've used a a couple of times in different lectures and I have a book chapter that that just came out um, on, on um, it's on sexual assault and, Sacred Intuitions—that's the name of the the essay—and I I deal with the Me Too movement, and I meant I talk about the Me Too movement because I think it's I think it's, it was a it was a great pushback against predator, mostly men, who took advantage of their power in order to procure sexual favors, and I think rightfully that should be resisted. But the problem, though, is that our wider Culture, our popular culture, treats sex as a simple commodity, something that is just simply reducible to mutual consent. Uh, So and yet the Me Too movement, I think, teaches us that there's something sacred about our sexual powers that simply can't be negotiated like any other transaction. So the example I use in the article is imagine, uh, the movie mogul, Harvey Weinstein, who is, uh, you know, has been credibly accused and I think actually convicted in court. Um, supposing, uh, he approaches an aspiring, uh, young female actor and says, um, uh, you can act in my movie in exchange for cooking dinner for me and my family once a week. Um, we may consider that odd or weird, but we wouldn't consider it to be a gross moral violation, right? But, but it turns out he actually uh, had those kinds of quid pro quo, but for sexual favors. And there we rightfully find it to be appalling, right? Why? What, what, why is cook? why do we treat human sexuality different than culinary arts? I think it's because we know down deep that there's something deeply sacred about that. This is why our, our criminal law actually treats sexual assault much differently than it treats regular assault. So if I were to, let's say, approach somebody in the hallway and give them a wet willy, <laughs> you know, I could be fined. The worst that could happen if they're not physically harmed, um, I could, you know, I, I may spend a night in jail. and <laughs> could be fined $500. But sexual assault, I could spend 20 years in prison. And I think that reflects something that's part of, uh, that that tells us that, no, human, even human physical assaults are different given certain things. And that can't be accounted for entirely by this sort of contractual model of human relationships.
2: I like that wording of sacred intuition. It makes me think of the idea of conscience and maybe conscience is a little bit more of a a rational leaning term, people might shy away a little more from the idea of sacred intuition, although I think it's a very valuable term. How does the idea of conscience play in with this idea of the sacred? You talk a lot about rites and the importance of liturgical rites and that there should be a respect for those in the law, recognizing that that's a reasonable expression of the human desire for the divine. Yeah. So it doesn't come from reason, but it is reasonable. So these these sacred rites are very important. What is the connection there with conscience and the idea of the moral obligation sort of stemming from both faith and reason, but really just being a reflection of the natural law inside of us, kind of that sacred intuition? Can you talk about that? Yeah,
0: so you know, we're getting get into a little bit complex issues concerning uh, natural law. So uh, Aquinas um, and other thinkers as well uh, – Teach that there's that we sort of are, are, are created with certain natural inclinations, uh, which he puts under the the heading of synderesis These are sort of like deep uh, inclinations we have uh, that lead us to uh, believe certain things about our relationship with other people and God. So we have a natural inclination. To um, to survive, right to live, to exist, uh, to uh, live in community with others, to beget and have children, and uh, because of these natural inclinations, um, and inclinations aren't instincts, right? They're just you know we, we sort of are ordered towards these goods, and uh, we hope that people are formed that 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 they're that that you know if somebody's like brought up by wild wolves, those inclinations are going to come out in very bad, very bad ways. But people's conscience can be formed uh, taking those sort of that uh, raw material of cinderesis and uh, they can be formed in a way so that um, that they can have, uh, that their inclinations can uh, be tutored in a sense uh, to do the right thing, and so if somebody, let's say, uh, grows up in a, a a family of mobsters, they're going to uh, they're they're going to have a conscience, right? So they you know they may feel bad if they betray the mob leader, right? If they don't carry out a hit, right, or something like that. But but that's bad that they were to follow their conscience, right? So um, so the idea though that we have this kind of internal natural law sort of raises the question of, well, well, why, why do we have it? Is, uh, are we, um, is there a, is there something that brought it into being? And this traditionally has been a way to talk about the way in which God uses conscience. Uh, But consciences can be badly formed, right? Um, uh, People may have, for example, supposing you, it's a, You've you've been taught rightfully, and you to obey authority, right? And 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 so, but but your conscience has not been formed well in that regard. So you think if anyone who is above you tells you to do something, you must do it. Mm-hmm. So so you know, um, you, you know your boss says, um, oh yeah, I want you to go, you know, get me lunch. Oh sure, I'll do that. And oh, and by the way, on their way there, kill Fred. <laughs> right. And you say, well, I've been taught I must always obey authority. So I even though my conscience, I, I seem to not want to do that, I have to obey. Right. So that's a malformed conscience. Sure. Right. So but ultimately, uh, the point of that illustration is that is that even if you have a malformed conscience, there's still some truth there. Right. So there is. Yeah, you should obey authority people that are in the position of authority right that are put there rightfully but you but a good but a conscience that well formed would 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 also you would also have been taught that but there are certain things that even authorities can't tell you to do that violate the natural moral law
2: so this one might be a bit of a longer question i think this distinction bec- between conscience and religion in terms of the legal system is really important because i think it it helps us understand what ground we're fighting on. Yeah. I think in your talk it sounded like you made a distinction between using the idea of conscience to support religious exemptions or religious liberty and speaking to religious belief itself as being the support for that. I think that's an important distinction, and it it makes me think of specifically the case where you focus on the ceremony of the gay couple wanting to get married and maybe we'll go to the the case of New Mexico where there was a photographer who refused to photograph the same-sex wedding um, and it sounds like you would argue that that's based on the fact that it was it's a sacred rite or a liturgy, that it has significance for that photographer beyond what the people getting married think it is and so there's there's a difference in understanding of what that ceremony means. And that leads me to wonder if you had a parallel case, say, maybe it wasn't a wedding, maybe it was two gay men who have adopted a few children and they have a family and they want a photographer to take family photos of them. To me, that seems slightly different because it's not a ceremony, but it's still, in a sense, a celebration of something that is not what they think it is. And so the photographer has a conviction that there's family photos celebrate a family. And in taking these photos, he would be in a way participating in a celebration of what he does not see as a family. And so I think there's a distinction there between ceremony and celebration. And yet taking the senior portraits of maybe the oldest son of that family would not necessarily violate his conscience because the focus is different. So there's that intrinsic link between whatever the act is and the belief, where I'm not sure ceremony would be quite enough to cover all of the conscientious objections yeah. there, but celebration maybe would include a little more because it's that intrinsic link.
0: I, I think that's right. I mean, I, yeah, so the, in, in the lecture, I was, what I was really trying to get at was a sc- kind of, be critical of a particular school of thought in 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 the legal literature that wants to say religion isn't special and so singling out those kind of cases uh, sort of helps show that that um, that there is something special about religion that can't be found in 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 other, uh, you know, human gatherings or celebrations, but yeah, the cases you bring up now, those are different, right? So those, there's not an, uh, uh, the, the, the photographer is not being asked to sort of cooperate with this, with, uh, a particular liturgical event, but he's asked in a sense to celebrate, uh, a union that he doesn't believe is legitimate, um, and there I think you'd I, I think you could bring in religious a religious liberty argument. Uh, you'd have to at this point you know cite something supposing the individual were a, a Catholic or part of a religious tradition where there was an identifiable catechism about you know what what marriage is and, and so forth and, and but there it would be it wouldn't be liturgical. it would be you know more of a doctrinal, uh, issue And then from a legal point of view, the photographer had better hope <laughs> that he had not, uh, let's say, taken photographs of, let's say, unmarried couples with children. Because, you know, I can easily imagine sure. the attorney for um, the government, if, assuming it's an anti-discrimination law case, the attorney, would, wait a second, if you're, oh, you're such a holy guy, why didn't you, <laughs> why did you just... Uh, why did why did you not take um you know wh- why didn't you do the same thing for the unmarried heterosexual couple? I mean I think you could come up with arguments you could say, well, you know I think that that is um uh, you know those children are let's say born of their union even though I don't think you know they're they're really married I'm not being asked uh, uh, you know to um you know to uh, to participate in something that I think is, you know, in always immoral. I mean, this couple could, you know, I think the the the, the heterosexual could could get married next week or sure, something. Sure, you can see there's yeah. potential so, for. Yeah, so, the so there's union. all sorts of. But you know, the point is, if you're, but you know, but I'm not sure a court. You know, most judges aren't going to you know want to get into the weeds of of theological mm-hmm. uh, di- distinctions like that. I think the 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 masterpiece cake shop cake is e- case is easier precisely because it is a actual celebration of an event. Um, I do think it does bring up some interesting questions about anti-discrimination laws. Like what's the point of anti-discrimination laws? Is it um, typically, they originally arise, um, you know, in the early 1960s, or at least in terms of federal law, there had been anti-discrimination laws long before that. And it was mostly with race uh, because of the history of of discrimination against African-Americans. And then later on, um, the anti-discrimination laws expand to include everything: nationality, ethnicity, um, sexual orientation, gender, uh, and so forth. So, if if the purpose of the if the purpose of anti-discrimination laws is to make sure that um, uh, certain discrete uh, minorities are not locked out of the marketplace, as long as there's another photographer willing to do it, then uh, then, you know, it's possible that a court could say that, you know, carve out an exemption. Although I'd, that, as far as I know, has not happened. There's a case that the Supreme Court, I, I think, I'm not sure if they've taken it or not, involving a, um, a web designer that was asked to design a website, uh, I believe uh for a, the wedding of a same-sex couple. I think I heard about this. So and I'm so that that's now that's that now that moves us to an interesting possibility that this is really a case now of speech, right? Is it more like is it is it more like a um like a business that just simply offers commodities or is it more like art, right? So an art of course is a form of expression and so the courts have been you know, have rejected the idea that the government can coerce people to say things, right? So now in this case, a web designer is involved with actual, you know, aspects that are clearly communicative, right? So um, so that's one of the arguments that actually came up in Masterpiece Cake Shop that the court decided to punt on, is the making of a custom cake a form of expression? And that would have been a First Amendment free speech case then.
2: It's really interesting the different angles you can take and the different directions that certain cases can go. We're getting close to the end here. Maybe for a last question, could you talk about the hope that you see for a foundation for religious freedom within the court system that takes into account this idea of rites and liturgy as being set apart in some way from other practices? And if you see if you see any hope for the future in converting more people to that mentality or helping the legal system understand better that rights are reasonable?
0: I am hopeful in, in this regard that, um, you know, a lot of these issues 20, 30 years ago would have never even come to the forefront. They would have just been sort of part of the just background beliefs of people. And I think that these recent cases have forced uh, those of us who defend religious liberty to actually come up with creative ways to get the attention of courts. And so I I think that there's also – also the disagreements today are so much deeper. So, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, the debates had to do with, um, you know, whether – Private school, private religious schools should get vouchers. Whether uh, it's permissible for a public school to allow a teacher to lead students in prayer, um, and there was even in even though there were those were disagreements, there was still a kind of common culture,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? But now the issues are these like deep questions of philosophical anthropology, and I'm not sure that our religious the first amendment religious liberty jurisprudence can really deal with it. I mean, it's, uh, it's because we're not accustomed to thinking of these, uh, disagreements, or, or at least we're not, we're not used to thinking that, um, these disagreements in religious terms, um, you know, we, we, especially when it comes to anti-discrimination law, uh, and so i I do think that uh, I'm hopeful that you'll see the courts being much more congenial to uh, seeing the religious citizen who, let's say, resists the wider culture as not a kind of unrepentant bigot, which is a kind of stereotype, but individuals that you know sincerely want to get along with others, but as a matter of conscience and uh, religious belief simply cannot cooperate with what they think is wrong.
2: So you're saying, as the distinctions become clearer, the case for the one side becomes more evident for the courts to see.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we have to live with each other, mm-hmm. right? And I think one of the things that that I think we have forgotten, partly because the way in which rhetorically, especially the disagreements over issues of sexual morality. They, they've been framed, I think, by one side a, a, as almost um, analogous to the old civil rights debates. You know, it's, it's you know, that the only reason why a person may have um, disagreements about uh, the trajectory of the sexual revolution is because they're a bigot. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, Jim Crow racists, when in fact, and I'm not sure, frankly, whether that argument... Or that that rhetorical strategy was even sincere in the sense that they really believed it themselves. I, yeah. I I think it was a sort of an attempt to, you know, attach themselves to a a movement that that was very successful. Uh, but I think if if we're honest, we take a step back and we look at why people disagree on these questions. They disagree because they they have just deep. Uh, you know, un, deeper un, dis, about how we say disagreement. I'm mean, going to use disagreement to define disagreement. <laughs> but uh, they, they just have uh, different understandings of of philosophical anthropology, and it has nothing to do with sort of crass bigotry. It has to do with just fundamentally different views of the world. And I and 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 it it's it's sometimes. I mean, it's difficult uh, to believe that you know, otherwise intelligent people can disagree with you. But, (laughs) but I think we have to return to that old fashioned, more kind of conventional liberal understanding that in a free society, people are bound to disagree with each other. And, and that's just the price we have to pay. And, you know, there's a certain amount of number of virtues that arise when, when you have to live with people who disagree with you, you and, and and I remember, you know, the, those virtues. And unfortunately, they're in shorter supply.
2: There's an opportunity to return to those.
0: I think so. Yeah.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Beckwith, for being with us today.
0: Well, thanks for having me. As always, thank you for listening.
1: Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Jaja.